Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. The BRICS group has officially welcomed five new members. How will they boost global collaboration and economic dynamics? Iran's state media report the country has dispatched a warship to the Red Sea amid rising tensions in the region. China has seen a notable surge in inbound travelers in December. You are listening to Broad Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Broad Today. The BRICS group has officially welcomed five new members. The founding members of the group have agreed to admit Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. The agreement was reached at the summit in South Africa in August. Scholars from the new member countries and experts have high expectations. So the investment that's going to come from the BRICS countries are going to be to fuel our development here. And the second thing is we're located in the, in the Horn of Africa, where Ethiopia is a gateway to the rest of the continent. Like, so definitely BRICS will benefit Ethiopia very much, and Ethiopia will also reciprocate these benefits in a major way. I see the concurrent accession of Iran and some Arab countries to BRICS as a positive opportunity because Iran, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and other member countries have their own development plans. The participation of countries in regional blocs or organizations can be very positive. This marked the second expansion of the group. Over 40 nations have expressed interest in joining BRICS and over 20 have formally asked to be admitted. So for more on the expansion, joining us now is Einar Tangen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Five more countries have joined the BRICS family, hailing from the Middle East and Africa. How do you perceive the new BRICS members and their potential impact on the group? Well, first, they'll have to figure out a new name. I think the B10, that sounds about right. (laughs) Um, You know, basically, they've doubled uh, their membership, and uh, they wanted to include Argentina. Obviously, uh, there was a political change there, and the new government has withdrawn. and so that pushes South America out. But if you start looking at it, it is a highly representative of the global South. Uh, obviously, um, you know, Africa, um, the Middle East uh, is, is very, very prominent in this. And it really starts to start to flesh out uh, what has been, you know, it, it started with four, then five, and now ten. With over 40 nations expressing interest and 20 formally requesting an admission, what factors do you believe played a decisive role in the selection of these mentioned countries as new members? Behind the scenes, uh, there was some resistance by uh, one member, India in particular, to new members. There's um, kind of a half, an attitude of the glass is half empty or it's half full. I think Four of the five thought the glass was half full, and they wanted to see BRICS kind of go forward uh, as an entity, uh, especially representing the global south. Um, in you know some instances, people said, "Well, let's go slowly." Uh, India was uh, kind of looking at this and said, "We're going to dilute our power because with ten members, uh, they only have one tenth of a vote. You know, five obviously to twenty percent." Uh, But I think at the the last moment, uh, India saw that there were advantages uh, to having more members, and not only more members now, but in the future. Um, The the real power of BRICS Plus, or B10, as it expands, is this idea that it's representing those countries in particular that have not done well under the current geopolitical system. I shouldn't say current, the past. A geopolitical system which was dominated by colonial powers, they were the victims of colonialization. And you can see that even today, you know, you can see that Burkina Faso and uh, the Sahel, uh, uh, parts of Africa, who's just said, look, why do we sell our uranium yellow cake for 80 cents euro and then have the French resell it for 200 euros? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. 
So there's this uh, new awakening, uh, and a lot of that is due to China. China has a different system. It's been very successful. It has shown countries that it is not about following China or any other country. It's really about developing your own idea and your own path for your country. And I think this is really what BRICS represents. There is no political agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, the five countries aren't saying to anybody that you should follow this uh, this model, that you have to be this kind of political system or this kind of economic system. It really is, we are all different. We accept those differences, but we have common goals in terms of security, development, and respect. Einar, Russia will take the rotating presidency of the BRICS countries in 2024. President Vladimir Putin emphasized the importance of cooperation in political and security, economic and financial, as well as cultural and humanitarian aspects. What specific initiatives or projects do you anticipate will be prioritized in these key areas during Russia's term as the rotating chair of BRICS? Well, according to Putin's own words, it, it's really going to be around the financial side. Uh, he's felt very strongly since his speech in 2007 before the Munich Security Council that the West, dominated by the U.S., uh, was in essence trying to control the world uh, for its own purposes. And he made it very clear that he wasn't happy with that. Since that time, we have seen that the U.S. has weaponized the swift system, which is the interbank settlement system, the international interbank settlement system. Um, and they said that, that they never would. There's also been, you know, obviously seizures of foreign funds of countries that they don't appreciate not going beyond Russia. So for Russia, the key uh, element here is the economic side, uh, trying to figure out a way to get away from the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. Um, I don't even think Putin thinks that the dollar will go away, but he wants to have alternatives already uh, between Russia and China uh, and globally. I mean, Russia and China, everything's settled in, in local currencies. But globally last year, only tw uh, 20% of all of the energy trades were settled in a currency outside of the U.S. dollar. And this is uh, something that the U.S. is going to have to watch. Could you please elaborate more on the future of this move? As Putin mentioned, the commitment to expanding interbank cooperation and increasing use of various currencies in mutual trade among BRICS members, how might these initiatives impact the financial system of BRICS countries? Well, it is very huge. You know, if you start looking at the world today, you look at developing countries, uh, a lot of them took out dollar-denominated loans. And then when the U.S. Uh, Fed started raising rates, this caused havoc. Uh, these countries had to raise their rates in order to protect their currency, to prevent outflows of money. Uh, that depressed their economies. It also meant that they, you know, even though they did that, they couldn't keep up. So as a result, they were in a position where they had to pay more of their local currency for their U.S.-denominated loans. It was disastrous, and it still is a huge problem. So, you know, this is the kind of thing where Putin says, look, we need alternatives to the U.S. dollar, not only in terms of trade funding, but also uh, in terms of loans. And this is uh, one of the areas where you're going to continue to see a lot of pressure, especially by uh, Russia, as it seeks alternatives. Obviously, they're under sanctions from the United States that prevents them from using dollars. Uh, so they have to push for an alternative system. Uh, if this goes forward, uh, this has an effect on the U.S. economy, which, you know, to this date is still funding a massive, um, you know, some say Ponzi scheme, but deficit, uh, $33 trillion in growing this year alone. It was a $6.2 trillion budget, but $2 trillion of it, over uh, just under one-third, was financed mm -hmm. uh, through debt. Uh, so, you know, the U.S. has this uh, situation. So there are a number, a confluence of issues that are gathering, which are creating real problems for the U.S., uh, but also cr uh, quite a bit of change globally.
Einer, many believe the ongoing discourse on a global landscape shift is notable, marked by the increasing influence of global South nations.、Uh, we know the BRICS nations, representing over 40 percent of the world's population, but have relatively low influence in international organizations like the International Monetary Fund. How do you interpret this phenomenon, and what are your expectations regarding the collaborative efforts of The global South,、uh, exemplified by the groups like BRICS. Well, on, on one side, you have the,、uh, the U.S. and the U.S. has been very clear that it is not willing to open up、uh, the institutions,、uh, World Bank, IMF.、Um, you know, you have Brazil, you have China, you have the BRICS. They all wanted a bigger say. And we're willing to contribute money. I mean, they they weren't saying, oh, you know, give us the <laughs> the votes without necessary financial inclusion. They were willing to put money on the table, but they were denied. And so you you have the, the you have the growth of these alternative entities like BRICS,、uh, which is rapidly expanding,、um, like RCEP, regionalization,、uh, which、um, countries are embracing because the WTO has, in essence, been shut down by the United States, who refuses to allow any judges uh, to uh, appellate judges. To be seated at the WTO、uh, without an appellate body, there are none right now because、uh, the U.S. will not、uh, allow any appointments. So, therefore, there can be no final decision,、um, and this this has just severely hampered the WTO. So, the countries are looking for alternatives that make sense, that are sustainable, that are inclusive. They no longer want to be under hegemonic,、uh, you know, control、uh, by one country. Einer, one last question. Earlier, I mentioned Argentina is also part of the expansion, but the new president has announced the country will not join the group of emerging economies. What do you make of the decision? How do you assess the impact of such decisions on Argentina's future economic plans? Well, not good. I mean,、uh, at the same time as he's saying、um, he was campaigning on the, the, the fact that he did not like China, didn't want to engage with China. The first thing he did after he got in office was he, he threw aside the chainsaws that he used to show up with at political rallies. He donned a suit and tie, and he asked China formally to renew a six billion dollar、uh, currency swap agreement.、Uh, China said, "Well, we want to know what's going on before we renew that."、Um, that has not been renewed.、Um, Argentina is in the same predicament it was before the election. A very weak economy.、Um, you know, they have lots of natural resources. They should be, a, you know, paradise on earth, but they're not. Now, he's made a lot of promises that he can fix everything, and that it's very simple. That just a little bit of pain will result in a healthy economy.、Um, I don't know that that's necessarily going to、uh, come true. So the world will be watching、uh, to see what happens. But meanwhile, you have the B10, which is going forward. And you've had reports out showing very clearly that BRICS and that RCEP, that the Belt and Road Initiative, are showing concrete results for the countries that participate. So, you know, in the end, it's not about words; it's about actions and results. And this is what is going to sway other countries in terms of their opinions about what is going on financially in the world today. Thanks, Einer, for shedding light on the BRICS expansion. Coming up, Iran's state media reports the country has dispatched a warship to the Red Sea amid rising tensions in the region. You are listening to Rail Today. Stay with us. Welcome. I'm Elaf Elard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth. An impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. 
You are listening to Road Today with Miguel in Beijing. Iran's tenth name news agency has reported the country has dispatched a warship to the Red Sea. This move comes a day after the U.S. Navy destroyed three boats carrying Houthi militants. The U.S. has established a multinational Navy task force in December to address Yemen's Houthis' attacks on merchant vessels. The Houthis say the attacks were in solidarity with Palestinians in the besieged Gaza Strip amid Israel's prolonged. Bombardment. To talk more on the new development in the region, joining us on the line is Dr. Wang Jing, associate professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Wang. My pleasure, and happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Professor. How do you assess the move of Iran dispatching a warship to the Red Sea? Because we know um, the report from Iran states that its naval fleet has been operating in the area to secure shipping lanes, among other purposes, since 2009. But how do you look at the move? How will it impact the situation in the region? I think Iran's warship in the Red Sea, especially uh, at a very critical moment, is a very major move to balance. Uh, of course, on the one hand, that Iran maybe described that uh, to maintain the original uh, safety of the passing ships uh, in the Red Sea. But on the other hand, I think Iran hopes to balance United States uh, military presence in the Red Sea because Iran has been. Uh, uh, has been repeatedly stressing that uh, the Red Sea, as well as the Persian uh, Gulf region, uh, uh, as of course the the the, the, the western the, the western part of the Indian Ocean should belong to the regional country rather than the the, the, the external uh, forces. So especially we know that the uh, United States is not a part of the regional countries, and also the United States. That it's patched uh, and organized uh, uh, naval joint forces to so-called deter the Houthi uh, military presence in mm-hmm. the Red Sea. So that is why I think Iran hopes to, on the one hand, to show the measures to balance the United States military presence in the Red Sea, and on the other hand, hopes to do something to show uh, its stances to, to highlight its stances. Uh, on the uh, on the Red Sea and other uh, regional issues that United States should uh, uh, does not belong here, and United States should not intervene the regional affairs uh, without the approval, without the uh, agreement of the regional countries. So I think that is why Iran dispatched a, a, a warship to the Red Sea, uh, and uh, I don't think it will lead to the escalation of tension. But and on the other hand, I think it is a measure. That uh, uh, suggested that, that the growing uh, attention has been given by the regional countries to the, what is happening in the Red Sea, and uh, the regional countries they hope to do to do more things from their own understanding, their mm-hmm. own perspective, to maintain the regional stability and regional peace there. Professor, as you mentioned, some say the move could be seen as a challenge to the U.S.-led maritime task force. But what's your take on such a narrative? How do you view the motives and calculations behind U.S. involvement in the region? I think from the, maybe from the United States perspective, they are, they they believe they are doing the right thing mm-hmm. because the Houthi uh, are uh, trying to attack. The ships with close connection with Israel. I mean, uh, some uh, not only the ships uh, with Israeli uh, financial supporting, uh, with Israeli nationalities, and with with Israeli uh, investment, but also the ships uh, headed to uh, headed to and also come from Israeli ports. I mean, so that is why uh, they they hope to attack the ships with very close connections with Israel in the Red Sea. Uh, maybe from the United States' perspective, this is this is unacceptable. Uh, United States hope to deploy uh, naval forces in the Red Sea to deter the possible uh, the, the the hijack or the possible possible attack from Houthi uh, rebels or the Houthi military forces uh, against the passing ships that with close connections with Israel. And on the other hand, of course, during the past two months, especially after this round of the war erupted in the Gaza Strip between Israeli and Hamas and Palestinians, that the Houthi, they started to launch missiles, rockets, and also the drones from the Houthi-controlled areas in the northern central Yemen 
to Israeli targets. So, of course, that is against this backdrop. The United States, uh, through their uh, naval forces in the Red Sea, they hope to intercept the passing drones and passing missiles and passing uh, rockets uh, that are coming from the Red Sea to the Israeli direction. So the United States may be from their understanding they are doing the right thing. But no matter what, I mean, on the one hand, the United States is not the original country. They have no right to stay there. And on the other hand, the rest of the original countries, they have, if there is something really happens, they have their own uh, rights and, and, and their own capabilities to do the things to help uh, ease the tension, to uh, decrease the uncertainties. So I think the external forces, especially led by the United States, although they hope they, they, they record themselves the, the, the peace-maintaining uh, mission, uh, so, but but no matter what kind of a name, they actually came here to uh, to to increase the tension, especially the regional tension, and to create more uh, uncertainties and more uh, instabilities in this region. It is not a uh, good signal. About the attacks, Houthis' attacks on merchant vessels, the Houthis say the attacks were in solidarity with Palestinians in the besieged Gaza Strip amid Israel's prolonged bombardment. What's your thought on this? Could you please elaborate on Houthi attacks in the Red Sea, particularly their targeting of vessels connected to Israel? Uh, Houthis, their targets are very clear. Uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, they target the, the passing ships and the passing vessels with a very close connection with Israel. On the one hand, some of the vessels, some of the ships may have, uh, may belong to, the, as we say, that they have the Israeli nationality. They are just the Israeli ships. But, uh, so uh, they, they just uh, try to attack these ships, and, uh, and sometimes they, they try to keep uh, some ships as their own hostage. And they clone their ships, they take the, the ships back to the ports, uh, in the whole series controlled ports. So these are the, the, these are how they move. And uh, on, on many other occasions, uh, the Houthi they started to target the ships in the Red Sea and uh, launch missiles and rockets and drones directly to the targets uh, of the ships and the vessels with the with the very close connections with Israel. So they hope to do this through this kind of the uh, attacks and uh, taking hostages. Uh, activities to show their solidarity, especially the very, very strong solidarity with uh, the Palestinians, and also to hope to support the Palestinians through this kind of move. Uh, so I think this, 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 that is why the Houthi, they hope to, uh, to do more, uh, not only to stress their own regional importance, but also to show the regional unity, especially the unity between uh, Palestinians and Arabs in the Arab Peninsula, to hope to give more pressure to Israel uh, to to facilitate the the, the kind of the uh, the peace and the ceasefire as early as possible. Professor, this recent tension in the Red Sea is considered a spillover of the Gaza crisis. What kind of signal do you believe this new development sends to the parties involved in Gaza? I think it, 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 it's a new signal uh, that uh, given from the Houthi to the uh, to the regional uh, parties, especially the relevant parties in the Gaza Strip, uh, because uh, directly that uh, Israel felt uh, the very growing uh, growing tension, the very growing threat and growing pressure from Houthi's attacks. That means that Israeli ports, uh, the Elat in the very <coughs> very Israeli port in the Red Sea, are now to some extent uh, become the very major target uh, by the Houthi uh, groups, and also the ships that passing to and passing from uh, the, 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 the Elat and other uh, Israeli ports, even in the Mediterranean. Uh, they will also be targeted. So that is that will be a major economic blow to uh, blow to Israel's uh, global market uh, connection. So I think it will give pressure to Israel. And on the other hand, politically, that uh, Houthi is a very very important regional player, especially not only in the Yemen uh, civil war but also in the uh, Arab Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And uh, Houthi has very close connections with Hezbollah in the southern Lebanon and also has very close connection with the the Hashda Sha'abi, the, the, the People's Mobilization Units. 
in the in, in, in the in the Iraq, the very Shia movement, and also has very close connections with Hamas and Jihad in the Palestinian and the Gaza Strip. So that's why also will give uh, militarily and politically a very very strong pressure and a very very strong. Uh, uh, the kind of a signal to Israel that the Israeli military uh, actions and the military operations in the Gaza Strip uh, should be and must be suspended as, uh, immediately and as early as possible, and uh, the international attention should be given to should be given to the the Gaza Strip war that is ongoing as early as possible, as much as possible. That the Gaza Strip war should not be forgotten and ignored. So I think this is a very, very clear and strong signal has already been transferred from the uh, Houthis' attacks and also their claimed, uh, I mean, the planning of being planned uh, attacks against the ships and the vessels with the the close connections with Israel. I think the Houthis will do more in the future. Thanks, Professor, for your insightful opinions and analysis. That's Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Coming up, China has seen a notable surge in inbound travelers in December. You are listening to Road Today. For more, you can follow us on X is CDTN Radio. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. China's factory activity has expanded at a quicker pace in December due to stronger gains in output and new orders. The Tyson Manufacturing PMI rose to 50.8 at the end of 2023 from 50.7 in November. Meanwhile, China's official PMI, which includes both manufacturing and non-manufacturing activities, came in at 50.3. In December, compared to 50.4 in November, that's also above the 50-point mark that separates contraction from expansion. So, for more on this and a broader economy, Zhao Yang spoke with Chu Qiang, research fellow from Beijing Foreign Studies University. So, first, Professor Chu, we now have both the official PMI and the Taishin Manufacturing PMI, and the Taishin Manufacturing PMI came in at fifty point eight in December. So, what insights can we draw from these latest figures, and is this in line with the expectations? Oh yes,、um, I think、uh, first of all, as our audience, we have to understand、um, the difference between the、uh, you know Statistics Bureau's、uh, PMI numbers and also Taishin's number. Uh, Statistics Bureau actually they try to you know do investigations all over the uh, uh, certain uh, enterprises with a big size,、uh, the big enterprises per se, and it's high seen you know pay more attention to the private sector, small and medium sized,、uh, but uh, but uh, meanwhile very active、uh, enterprises to do their PMI. So sometimes we have a saying that the Taishin's number is a precursor of Chinese economic change. So it shows、uh, they're more sensitive towards、uh, the economic, you know, sensitive. So I think through the Taishin's PMI, we can find out actually the Chinese economy has been recovering,、uh, revitalizing, especially from the、uh, frontier, from the、uh, small and medium-sized economy. And also recently, I've done my own research, my own homework. Um, I paid some visit to, you know, some retail and wholesale market、mm-hmm. by myself, and I do some, you know, questions. I do have some questions towards the, you know, shopkeepers, and most of my feedbacks are, the economy is getting better and better. It's getting warmer, definitely. Yeah,、uh, especially in this、uh, holiday season, people are coming in, families are coming in, swoop in and buy a lot of things. It's very, very different from. One year ago and also half a year ago, so I think Taishin's number shows,、um, yes, from the first tier of our retailing and wholesale sector,、uh, business is back and economy is back.、Mm-hmm. And you are talking about the manufacturing and also the services and the new productive forces is a buzzword recently, and the term refers to a new form of productive forces derived from science and technology breakthroughs and innovation, such as、uh, artificial intelligence and biopharmaceutical sectors. So, what are the differences between that and the traditional productivity, and how can these new productive forces help to drive the economic development? 
Well, um, you have to understand that uh, in China, this concept contains several key elements. Um, number one, it has to be new one. So it's the new way of production. It's new way of business model. And second, it's quality. Um, it means it have to be, you know, uh, providing you the quality of lifestyle. You must have high quality of, uh, you know, returns and also cost ratio. And also, it must be very productive, very efficient. So that's the reason why I think President Xi Jinping and the top leadership have mentioned about this new concept in China. And I think um, they have many different features from the previous uh, or the old productive uh, methods. Uh, for example, when we're talking about new, it means it's uh, it's brandly new. And um, like uh, what we have already seen, the digital economy, green economy, blue economy, bio, uh, you know, uh, bioscience and etc. So these are very, very different from the old uh, industrial revolution, the coal, the fossil fuel, the combustion engine and etc. It's quality. This quality means it has very uh, minimum, you know, externality and it's very cost, effect, uh, cost effective. For example, uh, when we're talking about an old business model, it's always, you know, from the profit or return angle, it's always linear, which means if you build one factory, you get one return. If you build two factory, three, four, five, and then you just add up the numbers and to get the uh, corresponding return. But in the new business model, in this new productivity, I mean, its quality of the return are, you know, exponential. Uh, what does that mean? It means if you build one smartphone or one solar farm, and when you've got two, three, and four, it's the return is not just doing the add up, but it's doing the multiplier. What does that mean? Because if you've got 10 uh, smartphone or 10 solar farm, what you get is not just by selling you know the equipment, but also you get them a bigger ecology. For example, you get live streaming, you got uh, you know uh, all kinds of the short video clips, you got uh, you know e-commerce and etc. And also by solar farming, you have not only the solar farm, the uh, power bills, but also you get EV, you get um, the whole transmission industry, you get, um, you know, in China, if you visit lots of solar farm, you find they even raise the sheep uh, under the solar panels because the solar panel keeps the water from evaporating from the soil. So it grow a lot of grass under the solar panel. This is another whole story. So. Mm -hmm. The return is exponential and also from the cost. The cost is lower and lower because with the new energy, its marginal cost is as more as you use it. The bill is not adding up, but reducing because the more electricity from the solar panel and wind farm you use, the cost is getting lower and lower and people are getting less pollution. The medical bills are getting less and people's health has been protected. So the whole world has been benefiting from it bigger and bigger when cost is getting, you know, smaller and smaller. So mm. that's something what we call the new productivities and giving people new lifestyle um, and the whole new you know, world has been presenting to you. Mm. And so it can really promote China's high end manufacturing also, right? Yes, exactly. The reason why we're calling them new is because this the, this kind of you know production is uh, you know uh, newly popped out in the world economy. For example, just a ten years ago, if you're saying that EV is going to dominate the road, you know, in many countries and become you know the new direction, I t I don't think anyone would buy it. And also, if ten years ago you're telling people that China is going to be the number one car manufacturing. Uh, manufacturers and also exporter. I think people will just call you crazy, right? Because we have Germany, Japan, and America in there, as well as uh, talking about new energy. Like 20 years ago, when I first walk around the solar farm and wind farm, and people are just saying, okay, this is just, uh, you know, for good. This is mm. just to match up with traditional power, try to lower the bill and get cleaner energy. It's nothing, something real because you cannot count on them to guarantee the energy security of the whole industrial nation like China. Mm. But right now, if I take a look at China, 40% of our energy mix comes from the renewable energy. So it's real. And also bioscience. More and more of the vaccines and new medicines has been coming out because we have the AI, we have the CLIPS you know, technology and et cetera. And also uh, when we're seeing about AI, I think last year, it's the first year People really take AI seriously, and AI is changing and reshifting our whole business world. Mm. So this is what we call new. This is called what we call 
high end, and、uh, you know the real deal is happening. And Professor Xu, for China's economy this year, domestic demand is quite crucial. So to boost the domestic consumption, what do you see as the major task? What measures can be taken, and in which areas do you think we can expect to see strong growth in terms of the increased domestic consumption this year? Well, from the domestic consumption, I think the most important thing is to you know、uh, repair、uh, the households and also small enterprises balance sheet. And I think the repairing、uh, progress has been made、uh, by the end of this year. Because as we just mentioned, we've done some you know field investigation. We find out people are coming out and buying. And if you were in China last、uh, year at、uh, the New Year Eve, which is just one day or two day ago, and you will find out people are. Just traveling around, there are probably, you know, tens of millions of people gathering around to celebrate the New Year, and they go to all kinds of the tourism resort and also the、uh, hotels and the restaurant. People are gathering there, celebrating, and the tourism business is booming, as well as the retailing business as well. So I think、um, from this sector, service sectors, if you read, if you take a look at the readings from the Taishin statistic, you find out、uh, the non-manufacturing industry are definitely、uh, on a hit, and also from the high-end industry like uh, the uh, uh, high-tech manufacturing equipments. And also from its、uh, GDP, from its、uh, import and export, we find out that sector is also very, very good. But I think what we still need to do is to recover people's expectation、uh, on the property market and also related industry. So、mm-hmm. if we can, you know, just、uh, stabilize and rebound that kind of expectation, and I think in 2024, Chinese economy will going to be on a full、uh, rebound track. That was Chu Qiang, researcher fellow from Beijing Foreign Studies University. China has seen a notable surge in inbound travelers from France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain, and Malaysia. The number recorded last month is more than a quarter of a percent higher than that of November, thanks to the implementation of a new visa-free policy for these nations starting December. The one-year policy allows holders of ordinary passports from the mentioned countries to stay in China visa-free for up to 15. Days. The move is regarded evidence of China's commitment to further facilitating cross-border travel and a high standard opening up. So, to talk more on China's travel surge during the holiday, let's bring in Dr. Zhang Gong, professor with the University of International Business and Economics. Thanks for joining us, John.、Uh, thank you very much for having me. How do you think the new visa-free policy for the mentioned countries has influenced tourism and travel between China and these nations? Well, there's no doubt that the、uh, uh, visa-free policy will enable more、uh, travelers from these countries to come and visit China for tourism and for travel, other reasons.、Um, it, it just makes the entry barrier a lot less,、uh, makes the travel arrangement a lot less hassle-free. Um, so,、uh, you know, overall, I think there's no doubt that、uh, it contributes to、uh, more people coming to visit China.、Um, and, and I think,、um, you know, the the three-year COVID era、uh, did take a fairly serious toll on the tourism industry as well as on just you know regular foreigners coming and visiting China、uh, for business or for other reasons.、Uh, and I think we're starting to see、um, the statistics are slowing coming back, and I think the new Visa-free policy certainly would help with that trend. We see majority of travelers、uh, engaged in sightseeing, leisure, or business activities.、Uh, how might the substantial increase in inbound travelers, coupled with the new visa-free policy, enhance the understanding of China among the nations involved, especially those in Europe? Well, I think、um, it, you know the last three years.、Um, The COVID control policy here in China, coupled with I would say you know very unfair、um, media coverage of what's going on in China,、mm-hmm. sort of combined to、um, cultivate this image that China is a difficult place to visit.、Um, it, 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 there's some truth in that in, a, in the past, but today I think、uh, it's not true anymore. So I think we need to spend efforts,、um, some time I guess, to.、Um, 
rectify that image, to, to, to make things easier for travelers. I mean, to, to make the reputation um, coming back again. Um, and, and I think this is really important for China's, just, not just tourism industry, as well as um, you know, for business as well. Professor, China and many other countries have recently introduced a series of preferential visa policies. Um, the most recent news is that from March 1st, no visas are required for travel between Thailand and China. In your opinion, how does this visa policies reflect China's broader strategy for high-quality development and opening up, as mentioned yeah. at the Central Economic yeah. Work Conference in mid-December? December. Right. I, I think um, this visa arrangement, visa-free arrangement between China and Thailand is long overdue. Um, Thailand is a major tourism destination for Chinese travelers. Um, I think, um, you know, so many people go and visit that country. It's a wonderful country. been there a couple of times. Um, so uh, there's no reason to worry about the first impact of uh, potential impact of uh, a visa-free policy. Um, I think the Chinese tourists' visit to Thailand contributes immensely to the local economy in Thailand, um, and 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 to some extent, you know, vice versa as well. Uh, I think uh, there are also people from Thailand coming to China as well. Um, so, so I think you know this arrangement reflects the uh, the overall trend of travel between the two countries, as well as I think people's expectation. You know, I think a lot of uh, tourists from China would love to save a few, um, maybe, I don't know how much is it, maybe 100 yuan, 20 yuan to visit Thailand, as well as the hassle of going through the visa uh, application. Now, I, I know, uh, I think uh, they opened up the um, uh, visa arrival application process uh, I think quite a few years ago, uh, but it's still a hassle and when you arrive at the airport. Um, you know, you have to go through this process. It takes about thirty minutes to fill the forms and all that. I think a visa-free policy would would immensely simplify things and, and contributes to uh, to visit Thailand. Mm-hmm. Uh, the visa-free policy is set to last a year until November 30th this year. Uh, would you consider the recent visa-free policy as a kind of trial run? Do you believe there will be similar or even more lenient visa policies in the future? You know, I can understand from the regular, uh, you know, they're adopting a uh, sort of try and, and error uh, uh, kind of approach. Um, you know, give it one year trial and see what's going to happen, and if it's good, um, and they will continue. And I'm pretty sure they will continue, actually. Uh, I don't see any major problems associated with that. Um, and as you also uh, suggested, uh, this policy will extend to uh, and be brought into other countries as well. I mean, I can immediately think of several countries um, that are uh, frequent destinations of Chinese tourists. Uh, why not extend the same policy to these countries? Um, you know, for example, uh, Malaysia, uh, and uh, and to some extent, I think Singapore as well. I, mean, I, just, I don't see any reason why Singapore cannot have an arrangement like this with, with me and China. Let's delve into this from an economic perspective. As the first holiday of 2024 concluded with the three-day New Year break, noteworthy statistics emerged in China. The data reveals that 135 million domestic travelers engaged in the holiday, experiencing an impressive about 160% year-on-year growth. And the domestic tourism revenue soared to around 800 billion or 114 billion U.S. dollars, showcasing a substantial 200% increase from the same period last year and also a 5.6% growth compared to 2019 before the pandemic. So how do you interpret this and what insights can be gleaned about the current trajectory of the Chinese economy? Well, actually, I'm not so surprised by these very encouraging statistics. I think um, the recovery uh, of the COVID era has been particularly strong and assured in the service sectors, um, and particularly, of course, in the tourism industry. So I think, uh, you know, the tourists, the hotel bookings, the, the uh, flights, domestic, international flights are coming back. Um, this is all expected, and I think it's good to see that. I think uh, in terms of the China's economic recovery, 
I, I would be um, more interested and I would be more hopeful for uh, you know, such kind of strong statistics in other manufacturing sectors as well. Um, you know, you know, reflected in people's you know, more consumption, more spending money buying things. Um, so, so I think at this point, uh, you know, we are still we're still pretty comfortable with the service sectors, but um, I think the major concern is in the uh, um, the, the the manufacturing sectors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks, John, for your time and insights. That's Dr. John Gong, professor with the University of International Business and Economics. This is Road Today. Stay with us. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. You are listening to Road Today. China is urging the Netherlands to respect market principles. Comes a day after chip-making equipment provider ASMO said Dutch government had revoked an export license covering the shipment of some of its equipment to China. The Dutch manufacturer had licenses to ship three cutting-edge lithography machines to Chinese firms until January when the new Dutch restrictions take full effect. But a report carried by Bloomberg says U.S. officials have pressured ASML to cancel the pre-scheduled shipments of some of the machines to Chinese customers. For further analysis of the latest developments, let's bring in Professor Chu Bo from China Foreign Affairs University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Chu. Thanks uh, for having me. Professor, the U.S. officials reportedly contacted uh, ASML to halt pre-scheduled shipments to China, and even the U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan reportedly contacted the Dutch government. How do you assess such a move from the U.S. side? Uh, so, first of all, I think uh, definitely this is part of U.S. Uh, grand strategy uh, towards China, and this is now brand new uh, since uh, 2019, uh, uh, 2019, and the United States already passed legislation and to control China's uh, to access the high uh, end uh, microchip printing equipments. And uh, last year, uh, last two years, 2022, 2023, and the United States uh, passed the new uh, regulations and also uh, organized uh, the trip full and to uh, to strengthen its uh, export control regulation against China. And the last uh, September, the United States already uh, already reached a consensus with uh, Dutch government that from uh, January 1st of this year, and uh, the United States will require the Dutch government to take much more stricter uh, export, export control policy uh, to China. So I think this is now new, and this is part of the U.S. Uh, high-tech containment policy towards China. Um, uh, but, but, and it, it's also uh, so-called the, uh, so, the U.S. so-called small yard and high funds uh, policy. And definitely feel the United States, uh, the desperation of uh, the urgency against the background uh, uh, between China and the United States. And we know the United States treat China as one of the major economic competitors and the United States uh, feeling is feeling a very strong pressure from uh, from China, especially from the economic strength of China. So this is why I, I think this is the end logic of you, why the United States has taken so-called the high tide containment policy uh, to China. In your opinion, what impact do you think the U.S. pressure on other countries and companies in the semiconductor industry will have on the entire sector, including U.S. companies? Do you believe the United States will achieve its intended outcomes through these measures? So on one hand, I believe, because we know uh, the microchip uh, equipment, that is uh, uh, much more concentrated in very small countries. And you can look at the United States, Japan, and uh, Netherlands. They are major uh, three uh, uh, countries, and they control most part of 
the uh, high-end uh, microchip printing uh, equipments and others. So I think on this uh, re- regards, and the United States may, uh, th- this is a collective action problem. So we can look at the United States. Uh, it's much more easy to uh, pressure other countries and companies, just like uh, the Dutch company, ASMO, right? Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, especially in the long term, and we also can look, and uh, uh, this kind of policy is very costly. And we also can look at now there are some uh, critics within uh, European unions uh, criticize the Dutch government is so easily bow to uh, the United States pressure. And they are talking about uh, the European Union should have its own policy position and should independent from the United States as well as from China. And on the other hand, we also can know uh, the cost uh, of this kind of export control policy that is very, uh, it, very high. And uh, I doubt uh, the, uh, the system, sustainability of this kind of policy, and especially for uh, European countries and for uh, Japanese companies. But with pressure from the U.S., how might the recent developments impact the business landscape for ASMO, those chip companies in China? Um, uh, sh- uh, sure. Uh, and uh, sure, uh, but, but we know that last year, uh, like the ASMO, uh, and uh, last year, they, uh, the 20% uh, of their revenue uh, from uh, Chinese uh, companies, um, uh, from China, right? So I think that will, uh, this is very costly for the uh, European companies and for Japanese companies. And, and also, uh, they can uh, claim uh, for the security or public security region, and they have to implement this strict uh, as part uh, control policy, but <laughs> the companies they need to survive, right? So uh, if you look at uh, the export control policy during the Cold War, uh, implemented by the United States, and at that time they also have the, uh, the differences and the conflicts between the United States and its uh, European allies and uh, uh, the Asian allies as well. The former CEO of ASMO, Peter Winnick, warned that pressure on companies might promote China to accelerate its own development in high-end chip manufacturing. What's your take on his remarks here? What are the potential consequences of this for the global tech landscape? Yeah, sure. China already started uh, to develop our own high-end chip manufacturer and try to uh, develop our uh, capacity, so-called the self-reliance uh, technology capacity. And uh, if you look at in the last, uh, uh, at least the last five years, China has uh, invested uh, a huge amount of money in, like, the advanced uh, microchip printing equipment and others. So, and if the United States now change their policies, and I believe in the uh, in the near future, there may be. Uh, there are two technology systems. One uh, is led by China, and the other led by the United States. And we will, but we have to confront a much more divided uh, world economically. Thanks, Professor Chu Bo from China Foreign Affairs University. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with Mika Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.